Well, if you can join me in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, picking up where we left off uh, last time. John 15, as you see from your bulletin, the title has been for the last few weeks, a warning of hate. And John 15, starting in verse 18 through chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus has been warning about the anger from this evil world system, the anger that will be experienced by those who are committed to him, committed to him, coupled with a boldness and a faithfulness to maintain a gospel testimony throughout their lives. John 15, 18 through 16, 4. And for the last few weeks, we've unpacked this warning. We've looked at it in a variety of ways. We have seen the satanic nature of gospel hatred. We saw that in verses 18 and 19. Allowed us to see behind the veil. Allowed us to see that the world's anger against us, if we take a stand for Christ, is actually anger against Christ. It's not personal. It's Christ-directed. Anger energized by the God of this world, Satan himself. We then looked at the many faces of gospel hatred. That was in verse 20. We saw the different strategies the world will use to silence us, to silence the gospel. You have personal insults, public humiliation, blatant intimidation, physical harm. Those were the same tactics used against Christ, strategies we're seeing even in our own day. Again, that's verse 20. It is true. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We then looked at verses 21 through 24 and the different roots of gospel hatred, seeing why the world actually hates the gospel, not only because of the world's spiritually blind eyes, but also because the gospel inflames the world's guilty conscience. It's trying to suppress. All of that changes. All that suppression changes when the gospel is proclaimed. To then what we looked at last week in the divine sovereignty over all gospel hatred. That was in verse 25. We looked at that glorious truth that none of the world's evil against the believer, none of that evil ever falls outside of God's sovereign decree. That all of it, no matter how wicked, how sinful, how painful, that all of it is working together for the glory of our Savior and for the good of his people. Look at verse 25 again. This is Jesus' promise. He says, but they have done this, all of this evil against him, all of the coming hatred that is in store for his apostles, carry it out for us as well who follow. They have done this to fulfill the word, to bring to pass the decree of God that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It's the doctrine of sovereignty, and this is the doctrine that sustains our faithfulness when hatred rises against us. It's the truth that God in his perfect wisdom and according to his omnipotent might based upon his divine authority and self-sufficiency, having no need to answer to any of his creation, 
And because of his love for his own glory and his love for his own people, he always decrees what is best, always. And thus we can rest assured that even in the middle of gospel hatred, he has not abandoned us but he is actually carrying out his redemptive work through us. And so up to this point in the passage then, in this study, Jesus has answered the who question. Who is responsible for the promised gospel hatred? Answer, the God of this world. He's answered the what question, what forms will this hatred take? He's answered the why question. Why is this world filled with so much opposition to Christ's gospel? Which brings us then to verses 26 and 27 for this morning. This is now the how question. The how question. How are we to face this gospel opposition that Jesus promises How are we to respond to the world's personal insults and public humiliation and blatant intimidation and physical harm? How are we to react? How are we to respond? This is the fifth point in our outline here. Let's put it this way. This is the only right response to gospel hatred. The only right response to gospel hatred. And in our flesh, I will tell you what we want Jesus to say at this point. I can read your minds. Some of us want Jesus to tell us to fight against this hostility, to let our rage burn and war against the world, to return anger with anger. If they hate me, I hate them. We want to yell louder. We want to insult stronger. We want to retaliate. We want to resent. That's how some of us want to respond to gospel hatred. But then there's others, this side of the room. There's others. (laughs) They're on the opposite side of the spectrum. These are the ones who want Jesus to give us the freedom to flee Right, to become silent about him, maybe justify our silence with statements like this. In fact, I just read this by a Christian leader this week. Here's a statement. The best evangelism is always done without ever saying a word. That's not true. But it would make it easier, wouldn't it? Make it easier. We want to retire into obscurity. We want to move into the woods, never to be seen again. We want to move to a different state or at least on the surface, it's easier to live the Christian life, more accepted. Fight or flight, we're all predisposed to one of these responses. And that is what we want Jesus to tell us at this point. And then even within those ends of the spectrum, there are some that think the answer to our world's sinfulness is temporal in nature. The answer, the response lies in perhaps maybe passing the right laws or electing the right leaders or preaching more politics from the pulpit. Or that the answer is found by picketing more or posting more on social media because that's always effective. 
And though it's true, those options there, those options, there's certainly privileges we have as Americans, certainly. But let's mark this. None of those are our primary calling as Christians. None of them. So what's the answer? What's the response? Well, Jesus tells us in verses 26 and 27, the only right response to gospel hatred is, here it is, is to testify of Christ. That's our calling. To testify of Christ while resting on the Holy Spirit to do his work of regeneration within the hardened heart of the sinner. We testify of Christ, we rest on the Spirit to do his work of regeneration when and where and to whom the Spirit sees fit. That's the right response. That's Jesus's answer here to gospel hatred. Those are our marching orders. That's our commission from Christ. Read the text. Start in verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you from the work of the Spirit, now to our responsibility, our commission. And you will testify also. That's our call. You will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. When the world rages, we witness. When the world hates, we testify. As the world darkens, we shine the light of Christ brighter. And please note, this is not an isolated case, an isolated commission here. This is always, always the way the Christian is called to respond to gospel hostility. Always. Think of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, Peter writing to the suffering, persecuted church. Verse 14, they're suffering for the sake of righteousness. Yet what does he call the church to do? He says, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Don't flee. That's not the answer. No, testifying of Christ is the answer. Continue always being ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. And notice it's not testimony mixed with anger or hatred or retaliation. It's making a defense for the hope that is in you. Watch this now, underline it, with gentleness and reverence. So let's just ask ourselves, does that describe us? Are we gentle in our response? Think of the Apostle Paul. He's imprisoned. He writes a letter to the Colossian church and he makes a request of them. Listen to the request. Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul writes. Keeping alert in it. Be vigilant in your prayer life for me. Specifically pray for this, verse three. That God will open up to us a door. And I'll tell you what I would ask of the Colossian church, that God would open up a door for me to walk through, that my prison door would be open. I wanna leave 
That's not Paul's request. No, pray that God would open up to us a door for what? It's for the word. It's for the gospel. Why he's imprisoned? So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Pray for my testimony. Pray that the spirit would work. Pray that my heart would not become angered, angered or bittered, embittered. Pray that it'd be faithful. Watch now, verse four. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Here's Paul imprisoned because of the gospel and he is praying for opportunities to speak the gospel. In fact, this is the same request he sent the Ephesian church. Ephesians 6, Paul writes this, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. For all the saints, not just Paul, all the saints. What is the prayer? Verse 19, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I would not cower or flee or grow silent. Pray that I would not let my bitterness grow. Pray that I would not hate the ones who hate me. Pray that I would maintain a bold testimony for which I am an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it, the gospel, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's the prayer. That's the response. In fact, this was Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And just remember the context here. Paul's about to be beheaded for his commitment to Christ. Timothy, he's feeling the pressures of the world. He's growing timid, fearful. That's why Paul writes. So what does Paul say? What is Paul's answer? He says this, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. That's convicting, isn't it? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all with gentleness, the same idea that Peter has, with gentleness and reverence here, kind to all, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. This is our testimony of Christ. We're gentle, we're kind. Why? Because this is what God uses to grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. You can't anger somebody into the kingdom. Verse 26, it's the kindness, the gentleness, that's the testimony that the Lord uses that they may come to their senses. This is a darkened mind to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil bound by Satan, having been held captive by him to do his will. It goes back to what Jesus says in John 15. So this is how we have been called to respond to gospel hatred. It's not to retaliate in anger. It's not to flee in fear, but rather it is to testify the very gospel the world hates, but to do it with gentleness and boldness and kindness and clarity. 
And while we do that, we rest on the Spirit to do his work of regeneration when and where and to whom he sees fit. Read again the end of chapter 15. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's break this down, break Jesus' words down a bit. First of all, notice the promise of his spirit. Notice the promise of Christ's spirit. This is the promise that we do not stand alone against this evil world system. That we do not face the God of this world in our own strength and according to our own resources. No, no, far from it. Jesus is promising to send his people divine aid in the person of the Holy Spirit. Divine aid is what is being emphasized. That's why Jesus uses the word helper here. Helper. It's a reference to the Spirit. It's made clear later on in the verse. The word helper here in its broadest sense, it means one who assists or one who comes alongside or here in the verse, more specifically, refers to one who comes to our aid, our rescue, and we are overmatched by an enemy. One who assists us when our strength fails. One who helps us and supports us when we're feeble and frail, exactly who we need in this spiritual battle against the God of this world. And notice who sends us this spirit, verse 26, this helper, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, the spirit is Christ's gift to us. Look back at chapter 14 for a moment. This is a gift of prayer, 1416. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. This is an answer to prayer from Christ. Spirit is Christ's gift, but also notice who Jesus adds to the mix here. Christ sends us the Spirit, but the Spirit comes from the Father from the Father, reiterated in the middle of the verse, the Spirit proceeds from the Father. So understand the profundity of this promise. Jesus is promising that though the God of this world is warring against us, no member of the Trinity has forgotten us or been withheld from us. The Son promises a spirit. The Spirit is also the Father's gift to us, and the Spirit comes as support and strength and assistance. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He writes this. When the Helper comes to them, extended out to us, they, we, will be resourced by heaven and anchored to God, the Trinity. So just let that sink in. Let this cast away every fear that we might have of this evil world system. 
before him, the triune God, before him, all human opposition shrinks. And so instead of being intimidated and crushed, these young men would be emboldened. That's what this promise does. Now notice how the Spirit would assist the apostles and us, how the Spirit assists, how the Spirit emboldens us. Continue verse 26. Jesus calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. We saw that back in John 14, 17. The helpers referred to the Spirit of truth. We'll see it again in 16, 13. He is the Spirit of truth. But there's a significance here, an emphasis Call the spirit, the spirit of truth actually narrows down the spirit's assisting work that he will do. This explains what Jesus promises the spirit will do for us and with us. The idea of truth here is not truth in general. It's not two plus two equals four truth. Truth in general, it's not that. No, the spirit is a spirit of truth in a very specific way, very specific truth, namely gospel truth, the saving truth about Jesus. You can connect this description, the spirit of truth, to what Jesus described of himself in John 14. I am the what? I am the, the truth. I'm the truth. The spirit is the spirit of that truth. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of gospel truth. Why? Because he is the one who shatters every false gospel lie. He's the one who opens blind eyes to see the truth of Christ. So Christ sends him to open up eyes to see Jesus. This is why Jesus tells us exactly what the spirit will do. Because he is the spirit of truth, he will testify, verse 26. He will testify. That's legal language. He'll take the witness stand and he will testify. He'll testify about me. It's the limitation of the Spirit's work, about me. The Spirit's work here is Christ-centered. It's Christ-focused. So the promise is that the Spirit will take the truth of Christ and implant that truth into the heart of sinful man and convince the sinner of the gospel's truthfulness. And the Spirit will do this by a supernatural witness, a supernatural testimony. This is 1 John chapter 5. No doubt John looking back at this very promise. Notice what John writes. John says, who is the one who overcomes the world? Who is the one whose chains to Satan are shattered? Who is that one? It's the one whose bonds to the devil are severed. Answer, he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. He who believes the truth of Jesus. The question though is, how does someone believe that message? How would anyone accept that gospel? Answer, verse six, it is because the Spirit testifies, the Spirit witnesses. It's the same word used by Jesus. The Spirit testifies of Christ. Why? Because the Spirit is the truth. 
Spirit points to the way, the truth, and the life. So what is Jesus promising in verse 26? What is John referring to in 1 John 5? Answer, Jesus is promising the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to assist his people's battle against the devil. That's what he's promising. He's promising to send his people, his divine spirit who possesses the power and the authority to change the sinner from the inside out and instill newness of life and give a heart filled with faith in Christ and repentance that turns from sin that angers Christ and to give new eyes that sees the glory of Christ. That's the promise. This is the regenerating work of the Spirit Jesus refers to back in John 6. Remember the promise Jesus said is the Spirit who, what? The Spirit who gives life, eternal life, regenerating life. Again, it's an amazing promise here. The promises seem to get better. Back in chapter 14, Jesus promised that the Spirit would indwell us, indwell us forever. And now Jesus promises that that same indwelling Spirit will change the heart of even the hardest of sinners. He promises the supernatural work that must take place. The Spirit will do that with whom he chooses. It's the only way someone forsakes their sin and comes to Christ for salvation. Now, how does the Spirit do this? We'll drop down to chapter 16, verse 8. Chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus will expand here. Here's how the Spirit does it. When the Spirit comes, Jesus says, he will convict the world concerning sin. The Spirit will testify about Christ, and in so doing, he will expose the rebellious heart of the sinner. He'll show the sinner the heinousness of their sin, and he will convict of righteousness. The Spirit will reveal the hopelessness of all man-made efforts of self-righteousness here. And he will convict of judgment. The Spirit will expose the guilt of the unbeliever. Reveal the severity of God's righteous judgment that awaits him. That's the witnessing power of the spirit. He brings that conviction to the heart. And so there's application for these men here for us. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, but... In the midst of that persecution, there's hope. There's hope. All is not lost. The gospel hatred abounds. The spirit is working. The God of this world blinds the eyes of the sinner. The spirit is opening those eyes, changing those hearts. So that's the promise of verse 26. But now notice how Jesus follows this up from the promise of his spirit to now the responsibility of his people. That's where it's gonna get personal now. The responsibility of his people. And here Jesus explains how 
the Spirit will perform his convicting and regenerating work. This is how the Spirit does it. Verse 27, and you, stop there. It's personal. Spirit is not alone in changing the heart of the sinner. The Spirit uses us, the believer, us to accomplish this heart change. And specifically, how does the Spirit use us? Answer, he uses our testimony of Christ, our proclamation of Christ. So continue the verse, and you will testify also. You will testify, not just the Spirit. To put it this way, the Spirit does not change the heart of the sinner in isolation. The Spirit does not change the heart of the sinner apart from the testimony of his people. Verses 26 Verse 26 cannot be separated from verse 27. I'll give you two observations here. Two observations. The first is this. The same verb testify, the same verb testify is used for both the Spirit's work and the believer's work. Same verb. It means that we each have the same task That task is to bear witness, to to testify, to take that witness stand in the midst of a hostile world and to take the witness stand and proclaim the truthfulness of Jesus and his cross. So that's the task of both us and the spirit. Now, the way this testimony works is certainly different, but they're intertwined. So our witness What we're responsible for, our testimony, is an external witness. We proclaim the message of Christ that it's heard. While the Spirit's testimony is an internal witness. Where he takes our external call and drives it home into the heart. You cannot have one without the other. You need both for regeneration. You have the external witness, you have the internal witness. Both are necessary. The second observation is this. The phrases that end verse 26 and begin verse 27, they're both emphatic in the original. So let's translate them this way. Verse 26, he, referring to the spirit, he himself. So the spirit takes center stage here. He himself No one else will testify about me. Again, that's the Spirit's work. It's an internal witness, that conviction witness. This is the Spirit's responsibility. No one else can drive home the truths of the gospel into the hardened heart of the sinner. He himself does that. Only Spirit does that. And yet the beginning of verse 27 is no less emphatic. Translate it this way, and you yourselves, and you yourselves will testify also. Which means this, though the Spirit is primarily responsible for taking out the hardened heart toward God and replacing it with a heart filled with faith and repentance. 
Spirit's responsible for that primarily. We, we, verse 27, we cannot stay passive. We cannot stay silent. There's a testifying partnership between us and the Spirit. If you remove the Spirit's internal testimony, our external testimony is powerless to do anything. You can't argue anyone in. But the flip side is also true. If we silence our testimony, then the Spirit will not perform His work of regeneration. The two go hand in hand. Both testimonies are necessary to change the sinner's heart, the external, the internal. That's what Jesus means in Matthew 10. It is not you primarily who speak. It is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. External call, internal testimony. And this is what we see throughout the New Testament. It's what we see. You have these twin truths. You have the Spirit's sovereign, regenerating power and the necessity for God's people to speak his gospel. We see it over and over again. I'll give you a few. Think of the start of the early church, Acts chapter one. Start of the early church, we read Jesus's commission. You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. It's the noun form of the verb testify. Same word again in John 15. You must testify about me, Jesus says. You have it in Acts 1. You will be my testifiers, my witnesses. That's your responsibility. It's your commissioning charge. And yet, what do we see at the end of Acts chapter 2? After Peter testifies of Christ, we read this. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The apostles bear testimony. The Spirit changes the heart. See this in the book of Romans. Romans 8. God has predestined some. Those whom God has predestined, he also called. That's the internal regenerating call of the Spirit. He predestines, he calls, and these whom he called, he also justified. So no one is justified if the Spirit is not working, no one. That's not where Paul ends. No, we come then to Romans chapter 10. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How can someone come to saving faith if the gospel is never proclaimed? And how will they hear without a preacher? So watch, faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. The spirit internally calls, Romans 8. And yet the spirit uses a gospel that must be heard, external call. See this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, letters. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is so clear. 1 Corinthians 12, he says this, no one, no exceptions here, no one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can bow before Christ in saving faith except by the Holy Spirit. So no one can see the glory of God in the face of Christ unless the Spirit changes the heart, gives new eyes. That's the Spirit's work. 
And yet, what does Paul write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? That God has given us, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us, watch now, us, the word, the gospel of reconciliation. He tells us we are ambassadors for Christ. We speak on his behalf. And he brings it together. We speak as though God were making an appeal through us. The Spirit enables the confession of faith. Jesus is the Lord. That's the confession of saving faith. And yet the Spirit uses the word of reconciliation, the testified word that we speak. This is the partnership, the co-witness, the co-testimony that is necessary to change the heart of the sinner. And this is why Paul makes that summary in 2 Corinthians 6. The summary is this. He calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. He talks about the spirit changing the heart. And he says this, here's a summary working together with him. Knowing the Spirit's work, working together with him, we also urge you. We speak, the Spirit speaks. We testify, the Spirit testifies. We also urge you, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you remove the Spirit's internal, regenerating testimony, our testimony becomes powerless. But if we silence our testimony, our witness, then the Spirit will not perform his work of regeneration. Verse 26 and 27, they go together. Well, this leads into the end of verse 27. And now the content of the gospel, the content of Christ's gospel We've seen the promise of the Spirit, our responsibility, but now the question is, what is the message the Spirit uses? What is the responsibility we have to speak? Notice the end of verse 27. Verse 27. For the apostles, the content was what they had seen and heard from Jesus. That's what they were to proclaim. You will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning, from the beginning of Jesus's ministry. So the commission Jesus gives his apostles is the commission to speak what they saw about him, what they heard from him. To repeat what Jesus claimed about himself, what he did, what he said. Well, the same applies to us as well. For us, what is our calling what is our calling? It is to testify what the apostles recorded about Jesus from the beginning. That's our responsibility. And this, is, this should be freeing. This should be freeing. Because this means that we have not been called to invent a message of salvation. And this means we have not been called to wow the sinner with some supernatural feat. And it means that we have not been called to answer every question a skeptic might pose 
every doubt a person might have. No, our responsibility, our testimony, our witness is much simpler than all of that. Our calling is to speak our Savior's gospel, what we have heard about and from Jesus from the beginning. That's our calling and that's what the Spirit uses to change the heart. It's freeing. We point to Christ. So what would this include? What would this include? Well, let's go to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what you've seen from the beginning. This would include talking about man's sinfulness, man's sinfulness apart from Christ and Christ's sacrifice for sin. Think of John the Baptist's witness, his testimony. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the message that saves must proclaim full forgiveness of sin found only in Jesus. You're saying this is not a Christmas message. Well, Matthew 1, you shall call him Jesus for he will what? Save his people from their sins. There's the Christmas message. This would also include a testimony about Jesus's sinlessness, his perfection. The very reason he can pay the penalty for our sin is because he himself had no sin. Think of what Jesus says about himself. Again, tell others what Jesus has said from the beginning. What does Jesus say about himself? John 8, I, will, I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. Always. It's the sinlessness of Christ. That's why Jesus is the one and only Savior. Our witness must also include Jesus' claim of deity. He's not just a baby in a manger. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe that I share the same nature as God himself, you will die in your sins. Clear. The message that saves is the message that Christ is truly God, the one who alone can exhaust God's wrath against sinners. He is also truly man, the one who alone can stand in our place as our substitute. Our testimony also includes the promise of heaven to those who believe. It also means that we don't shrink away from issuing the warning of judgment for those who reject Christ. That's John 3. He who believes in the Son, has eternal life. That's a great promise. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's the warning. Our gospel testimony also includes Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He conquered Satan's greatest weapon, the fear of death. Christ's payment for sin has been accepted by his father. Our witness also includes the call to let go of all of our filthy rags of self-sufficient pride and come to Christ in saving faith alone. That's John 3. Whoever believes in him through faith alone shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice again, verse 26, 1526. 
The testimony the Spirit uses, watch now, the testimony the Spirit uses to change the heart is the testimony about me, Jesus says. It's the testimony about me. Spirit changes the heart when we point people to Jesus. Notice the implications then. The message that saves is not when we tell others about how our lives have changed. That can be a bridge, and that's a fine bridge. But if we, ever, if we never get to the work of Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection, his return, we haven't given the gospel, given how Jesus has changed us, the effects of the gospel, but not the gospel proper. That can be a bridge, but we need to point people to Jesus. Who is he? What has he claimed about himself? message that saves. Also, it's the message of Christ. That means it's not political in nature. So it is not the message of democracy. It's not the message of free speech. It's not the message of freedom of religion. It's not the message of capitalism. None of that's the gospel. The message that saves has nothing to do with any social movement or environmental cause. None of those messages saves the sinner. The spirit does not use that proclamation. gospel that saves, the message we have been called to give testimony to, and the message the Spirit uses to change the hardened heart is the message about Christ. His person, his work, his perfections, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his return, and his call to bow before him in faith alone. Can you imagine the impact we could have in this valley, in this evil world system, if we embraced 1 Corinthians 15? Let me read it to you. Paul says, I make known to you the gospel by which you are saved. And then this, next phrase, it is the gospel which is of first importance. First importance. So let me ask you, do we believe that? That the gospel of Christ is of first importance? Do our conversations with unbelievers show that? And what is this message of first importance? Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It's the sinfulness of man, the sinlessness of Christ, the substitution of Jesus, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Or imagine the gospel impact we would have if we embrace 2 Corinthians chapter two, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Each of those passages is drawn from Jesus's promise in John 15, 26, the Spirit will testify about me. It's Christ-centered, Christ alone. Again, to quote Sinclair Ferguson, he's put it this way. Here in this dark hour, Jesus is casting an anchor for his disciples into the very heart of the being of God. 
It is as though he is saying, my friends, I know the opposition may be fierce, but do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me and bear witness to me no matter what. Be on your guard and ready for persecution, even hatred, but do not think your adversary's resources are greater than yours. Keep on being my witnesses. You are not alone. The helper is with you. This is the only right response to this evil world's systems, anger against the Christian. It is not to isolate ourselves in fear. And it is not to retaliate in anger. And it is not to focus on the temporal. No, the only right response is to point people to Christ and Christ alone, waiting for the spirit to change the heart when and where and to whom he sees fit. In the words of one pastor, people change Families change, cities change, countries change, and the world changes only when hearts change. Therefore, speak the gospel. Father, I pray that you would grant us a faithfulness to this charge. That indeed we would see this battle for a love for Christ in a cosmic way. And that we would remember that the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful. That it is the proclamation of your gospel coupled with the Spirit's power. Lord, I pray for repentance for us as maybe we want to flee, forgive us. Or we want to fight, forgive us. Give us, Lord, a compassion and a gentleness and a kindness and a boldness to speak your word if perhaps you will use that to grant the knowledge of the truth leading to salvation. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.